This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hello, I'm Chris Warburton, and for the last time in this series, welcome to Beyond Reasonable Doubt. This final episode, Where Are They Now?, is being recorded in front of a live audience here at the London Podcast Festival. In episode 16, I'll be trying to tie up some loose ends, check in on how people are doing, and of course, looking at how people's lives have been changed and affected since that December night in Durham, North Carolina, in 2000. You know, I think it will haunt the community and haunt us for a long time as to what actually did happen. And if it was manslaughter doesn't answer the questions does it how uh, how she died or what he did to her it's an unsatisfactory uh, semi-conclusion i would say i've been skeptical of the evidence against michael now what do i think when he's admitting to manslaughter so uh, nothing's really solved it's just another chapter, I, and I can't believe they're going to be, be there won't be future uh, twists and turns to this story. I can say by the end of the case that everyone involved with it was exhausted. We were mentally exhausted, we were physically exhausted. It was grueling. Would I do it again? Absolutely. Would I do some things differently? Certainly, hindsight's great at allowing you to take that perspective but would I do it again and would I take five months to try a case like this absolutely I've not been one to sort of seek out uh, the notoriety of being part of a cottage industry but I also recognize that that's what our culture is and and, uh, I don't know that there's any real solution to that I think maybe it's part of human nature they just They latch on, people latch on to a story, uh, and it becomes bigger than life. And, and, you know, we've seen it over and over and over again. And it's not just recently. I mean, you know, go back to cases that Clarence Darrow did back in the 20s. So I think it's just part of uh, of our psyche, if you will. We actually uh, put a uh, bench and a garden in the park in her memory, and I usually walk the park about three times a week. So I don't know that she's really been forgotten. I think people are a little relieved to have this situation over. It did affect the neighborhood for a while, and a number of neighbors have moved since then. And Michael took the, the limelight, took the stage. It was worth it to know, after 15 years, my Self and my family, my dear husband, we sacrificed a lot to fight for justice for Kathleen. So we did get him to spend nine years in prison. He lost his big fancy house. He lost all of his money. He owes my niece over $25 million. And I finally got to hear him say guilty. The fact that he's free, yes, I would prefer he's sitting in prison. But if he was sitting in prison, he'd still be pontificating that he's falsely innocent. So maybe I got the best of what I can get, that I got some prison time, and I got him to say his guilt. I didn't think 
I would be changed. When I got out of prison, I thought I would move right on. And I realized, oh, no. Those eight years had a, a profound impact. I was in war for one year. I was in prison for eight years. And when I got out, uh, I thought I'd just move on. Well, there were some definite scars from that. So uh, I don't think I'd be the best judge to tell you how I... Uh, how I am now. You'd have to ask those who really know me well. You'd have to ask Patty, Patricia, or, or my kids. Uh, but I think we're all pretty happy with the way things are right now. He does, no matter what the day brings, he tries to, to be very positive about that. But he still, as I to repeat, he will always cherish and love Kathleen. He loves his children and grandchildren, which are ours. Now, you heard there from some of the Petersons' neighbours, from Candice, Kathleen's sister, from Michael Peterson's first wife, Patricia, from Michael himself and the man who successfully prosecuted him, then DA, now Judge Jim Hardin. They're all here to tell the tale. They've all come through the tragic experience in varying degrees. Now, we've tried to pay tribute to and paint a picture of Kathleen through the eyes of those who knew her and loved her. Of course, she can't tell her tale, and neither can Liz Ratliff. But there are others who can't talk to us because what happened marked a turning point in their lives, whether they knew that at the time or not. Let's talk about Freda Black, the charismatic, cool, and piercing assistant DA, the woman whose questioning and closing arguments about Michael Peterson's bisexuality made quite an impact. What types of services did you perform? Basically, it's a, a companionship uh, for other males. And did that involve sexual activities? Just about anything under the sun. <laughs> so you had emails there between Michael Peterson and a male escort. They were trying to come up with a date and a time to meet and have a sexual encounter. They were communicating back and forth about each other and about what they might like to do together and how much it was going to cost. It was very specific. Very specific. Right there in the top right-hand drawer to the desk is where these emails between Mr. Peterson and the male escort were. We believe that she found those inside of the desk that night. And confronted Michael. We believe that she confronted him and that he lost his temper at that point. We had established through a lot of people that, that knew them that he had a horrible, violent temper at times, and we believe that he, he lost it. Freda was invaluable to our success. Um, we worked solid from about Christmas of 2002 until October of 2003. And we were constantly together working every night, every day, every Saturday, every Sunday. Um, and Freda was integral to us putting the case together as we did. I don't honestly believe that we could have done it without her. That's then DA Jim Hardin on his legal partner during the trial. Now, you would have thought that Freda's high-profile performance in this case would have propelled her up the legal ladder onto greater things. Michael Peterson is a very intelligent man. He, he was a mastermind at fooling people. How do you live in the same household with two girls and raise them and be their father and you know that you've killed their mom? I think that Michael Peterson's personality is the type of personality where he has convinced himself that he did nothing wrong. He's convinced himself that he didn't kill Elizabeth Ratliff, and he's convinced himself that he didn't kill Kathleen Peterson. 
And here she is on WRAL talking about our old favorite, owl theory. Well, there's already been so much time, energy, effort, money spent on this one particular case that unless it's a legitimate theory, which I don't believe the owl theory is legitimate, unless it's legitimate, now I think at some point in time you have to lay, let the case go, let it rest. The appellate courts have already spoken. The, the, the case is over as far as I'm concerned, and that's unfortunate for Mr. Peterson, but it, as far as I'm concerned, it's over. Oh, we just heard a bit of a titter from the crowd when we mentioned our theory, and I want to get your views on that in just a moment because I know people have got some pretty strong opinions on it. Uh, the coverage of the Peterson case did produce some fans of Freda for her style of questioning. Now, there's even a YouTube video, you can go and check it out, which mixes some of her key phrases over a dance soundtrack, believe it or not. Uh, sadly, and I do mean sadly because we'd love to play it to you, uh, there's a bit of a repetition of certain words, which means we can't really share it with you. Not tonight, anyway. Uh, Freda was then fired by the then DA, Mike Niffong, who then defeated her in 2006 when she stood against him. She stood again after Nifong himself was dismissed in the aftermath of the Duke lacrosse case. Now, just for reference, if you're not familiar with that case, it featured three white lacrosse players at Duke University who were wrongly accused of raping a young African-American woman. Uh, the case and the handling of it opened up really pretty severe race divisions in the community. Freda in that election didn't win, but she got more than 40% of the vote, and it's really a matter of conjecture whether the Duke lacrosse case affected Nifong's campaign favorably. Freda went into private practice as a defense lawyer, but then she started making the news, the local news, for other reasons, the wrong reasons. She was arrested for drink driving in 2012, and again in 2015. Her employer that time was listed as Durham Cleaners. Now, on our behalf, Gaspo, who you'll be familiar with, Tom Gasparoli, approached Freda more than once for an interview. I don't want to judge um, some of the things that have happened to her as reflective of, of who she is, but uh, there have been some difficulties with alcohol that's been documented. I don't know where she stands on that today. I have talked to Freda at some length a couple times in the last few months about this case and about her life. After the trial... Um, there were just the normal issues of a new district attorney and other issues. She eventually lost her job at the district attorney's office, went into private practice, was not particularly successful. And then there were some events that, you know, brought some, you know, shame to her, I suppose. She struggled. And if you know anyone who struggled with these issues, it is a struggle. And she's a mother and she's a single mother and her kids were in high school they were little when this trial happened. So you have to have a lot of feeling for Freda. She's taken some uh, jobs that don't pay very much. Yet we all know how sharp Freda Black is. She's a formidable force today. She's just having some issues, as we have all had in our lives, that keep her from realizing her potential. She realized her potential in that case. Um, she still talks about it. She comes alive when she talks about it. And... She remembers it like it was yesterday. We asked to talk to her. She sent me a note today that just said, I'm so sorry. I've just got too many other things I'm dealing with. So, you know, it didn't, she didn't really come out of it okay, but it didn't have anything to do with that trial. So that's Freda Black. 
What of the man who Freda so memorably questioned on the stand? Brad, the male escort. The man who didn't actually ever meet Michael Peterson, but exchanged some sexually explicit emails with him. Brent, as he's known to his friends and followers, is a reality TV watcher, and he appears on Rob Has a Podcast talking about things like Big Brother in the USA. Well, thank goodness for Twitter, because we were able to track him down. And we spoke to him earlier this week from his home in Kentucky. Michael Peterson was not only trying to contact me, did contact me many times, actually, because he was looking for a male escort. I found Michael Peterson to be interesting. And so uh, we talked for a little bit. Most of my clients were married and most of them had really good relationships with their wives. Michael Peterson was no different to me. It was a little odd that he talked about her in an email to me. But on the other hand, some other clients had done that as well. The defense wanted me to talk about that when they cross-examined me. However, the defense did not want me on the witness stand. They only chose to talk about that because I was forced to testify. And then they were like, well, let's try to make lemonade out of lemons. And uh, they tried their best to do that. So that's why I ended up on uh, the witness stand talking about Kathleen Peterson and his emails about her to me. Uh, Brent, that's interesting. You use the phrase, uh, you know, forced to testify. It was 2003. It was North Carolina. And Jim Harden and Freda Black were losing the biggest case of their career. They were losing. Let's be honest. They were not going to win. Everybody in the press said it. The jurors didn't look very interested. And so they needed a plan. And their plan was, you know what? Let's shake up the court case a little bit. We don't have very much right now. We don't have a motive. We don't have a murder weapon. Let's bring this guy onto the witness stand. He's a bit of a circus. And let's hope that people are so turned off about the fact that Michael Peterson was trying to hire a male escort outside the bounds of his marriage that maybe we'll pick up a few homophobic jurors along the way and we'll be able to turn this case around. They were hoping that someone bought the fact that even though this guy seemed like he had a relatively cool marriage with Kathleen, that the fact that he wanted to get his rocks off with some hot guy from the military, that may have some relation to him possibly killing his wife. Of course, it didn't in my eyes, but they were able to get it in as evidence. That's how they forced me to testify. They had told me that I was not relevant. They had told me that they understood when I told them that, look, I have turned my life around. That was the whole point of joining the military. I'm in school right now. You know, if this gets out and ends up in the paper and by extension the internet that I'm an escort, my life is going to be over. So you leave the witness box on that day. How in the short term did things change for you? It was just a, it was a rough time in my life because I felt like that some of the good things that I had done to turn my life around were being undone by things that were basically outside of my control. And I sort of resented that. And that's really what sent me back into addiction. Uh, I was uh, an addict at, in the military. I had become an addict uh, based on pain pills that I had been receiving in the military. I had successfully gotten off when I left the military, but when the whole thing hit with the Michael Peterson trial, I started using again. And I will tell you that on the witness stand, I was high. It sent me back into addiction, and basically, the Michael Peterson trial, I can't tell you how many ways it ruined my life. But the good thing about it was I was finally able to get the help that I needed. I was uh, was able to go to rehab, and uh, I feel like the events of the Michael Peterson trial, in some weird way, 
probably ended up helping me out because I have a great life now, knock wood. But I also don't know what would have become of me if the trial had never happened. All I can say is this, that I love where I'm at right now, but it, it wasn't necessarily an easy road to get here. At the time you referred, you didn't think Michael Peterson was guilty. Do you feel he is now? I mean, I don't know. I just don't know. Um, I, If I had to vote, I would have voted not guilty. I didn't think that the state proved their case. I thought there was certainly reasonable doubt there. You know, you're not just going to go off and kill someone you've been married to for 20 some odd years for no reason. I mean, there has to be a reason why he might have decided to kill her. The state put forward this theory that Kathleen had found the emails and had confronted Michael Peterson and he killed her. I don't understand that theory because the fly in the ointment is why in the hell would he kill her? If anything, in the story that they're presenting about how she found the emails and was mad and angry and pissed off that he was hiring guys behind her back, it seems to me like Michael Peterson would have been the one who ended up dead at the bottom of the steps and Kathleen would have been on trial for murder. I mean, she would have killed him. How then does he kill her? He's like a little kid at this point. He's the one who's been caught. And so if anything, she's the one who's going to kill him. What was the motive? People just don't kill people for no reason. So what was the damn reason that he killed her? And no one can ever really answer that to me. So I would have voted not guilty and uh, I would have been able to live with my vote. Who likes Brent, right? <laughs> Uh, that was fantastic. Um, interesting as well, right, what he had to say about being high on the stand and felt like he was being forced to give evidence. So that's Brent. There's another character who, a bit like Freda Black, but for different reasons, has had a fall from grace. The blood stains that are found in this scene are not consistent with actions of a fall, either on the surfaces of the steps, the surfaces of the wall, or the surfaces of the chair, or the surfaces of, 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 the, of the corner here. Now... That's former SBI blood expert Dwayne Deva on the stand during one of his near eight days giving evidence during the trial. As we covered in an earlier episode, number 10, it was the flawed nature of his testimony which got Michael Peterson released. He endured the disintegration of his professional reputation and he lost his job. A fired SBI blood analyst is fighting to get his job back. Thank you for joining us. I'm Deborah Morgan. And I'm David Crabtree. Dwayne Deaver is connected with some of North Carolina's most notorious cases, including the 2001 conviction of Durham novelist Mike Peterson, sent to prison for the murder of his wife. That case is now in limbo after a judge found Deaver lied about his credentials while testifying and Peterson's attorneys appealed for a new trial. Then there's the case of Greg Taylor. You'll remember this emotional scene when Taylor was exonerated in the murder of a woman after spending 17 years in prison. Deaver never testified in Taylor's trial, but his notes were used. Deaver came under fire for SBI crime lab reports that did not include negative test results for blood. The former SBI agent says that was the proper protocol for filing reports at the time. There's a Facebook group which was set up to support Mr. Diva when he was going through his disciplinary process. It has 300 members and was set up to... ...comment on articles and in general show our love for and confidence in Dwayne Diva. Any negative comments will be removed. This is not an open forum for debate or discussion. 
This group is for Diva supporters only. It features contributions from his daughter and former work colleagues. There are family pictures of Dwayne posing with his kids and grandkids. It hasn't been active since 2014. A former colleague wrote, Dwayne, I just wanted to say that I'm sending lots of prayers your way. I don't know how you've kept your sanity this long, but I do know you're an honest, respectable person, and I pray that justice will prevail. Don't let anyone strip you of your integrity. Well, we asked his lawyer and his daughter how Mr. Diva is getting on, and we emailed him directly, but we had no reply from any of them. We know he's director of operations at a large company in Texas, and he includes his time at the SBI on his professional profile, but perhaps understandably doesn't say how it all ended. We spoke to a friend of Michael Peterson's, a guy called Donald Nimmons. Perjury was accepted with, you know, until it was caught with, with no consequences. If you and I had done something of that nature, we'd be put in jail for perjury. So you, you look at this and you say, well, I don't know how well the justice system really works. If they can make these types of mistakes, they can jump to these sort of conclusions, be unwilling if the evidence supports it, to, to turn around and say, no, 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 we've, we've made a mistake. We're going to back. They were never going to do it. You know, with, with all the information and evidence that's come forward, it's much like Conan Doyle said, once you eliminate the impossible, anything that remains, how, you know, however improbable, must be the truth. And I think that nobody, with maybe one exception, has been able to look at this without a jaundiced eye, without, as I say, a horse in this race, and say, okay, these are the facts... And this is how we should, should proceed with it. This was a rush to judgment. Now, the reason we were glad to speak to Donald Nimmons was because he worked as a handyman at 1810 Cedar and originally had no time for Michael Peterson at all. But he subsequently changed his mind. We'll hear from him more in a little bit. Getting Michael Peterson's case thrown out was obviously a big victory for David Rudolph. So how did this case change him? For one thing, I think it uh, it led me to do more um, civil rights cases. I'm now doing a lot of wrongful conviction work. I have one client right now who spent 27 years in jail before being exonerated. Uh, and I'm representing them uh, against the police who engaged in misconduct uh, and suing them uh, for monetary damages. And I find that very rewarding at this point because it it sort of helps me to police the system, if you will. I'm not sure I'd be doing that but for this experience. You know, before my goal was to keep people from being wrongfully convicted. Now my goal is to help those who were wrongfully convicted reclaim their lives. Now make a little bit of noise if you've seen the documentary Death on the Staircase. A little bit, a little bit, yeah, a few of you, quite a few of you have seen that documentary. Well, during the case, and as seen in the French documentary series Death on the Staircase, you'll have seen moments of levity. There were moments of fairly dark humour from the participants. So I wonder, how does Mr. Rudolph look back on that? There was a lot of tension virtually at all times in preparing for that trial and then in trying the case. Uh, And I think it's almost inevitable that when you're under that kind of stress um, for long periods of time, something's going to happen that is 
incongruous, uh, unexpected, bizarre. And I think you almost overreact to it, uh, you know, where it might have gotten a chuckle uh, under normal circumstances, <laughs> given, given how tense you are, it becomes hysterical. Uh, and I think, you know, that was probably captured a couple of times on the film. You also saw on the film me completely losing it uh, with uh, the person who was assisting me to get ready for, uh, for the opening statement. Um, not a moment I'm particularly proud of, but it sort of shows the level of stress uh, that all of us were operating under at that time. So, yeah, there were moments of levity, and then there were moments of, uh, of very dark emotions coming out. And what about the man who presided over it all, the man who's been a charm throughout, Judge Orlando Hudson? Well, he's as cool as ever. Uh, I think it's clear what Mr. Rudolph has at stake, and that is his client's life. He could be in prison for the rest of his life. He, he has a lot at stake. I didn't have any of those things at stake. Now, I've been, a, I've been a defense attorney. I've been a prosecutor, so I can relate um, to Mr. Harden and Mr. Rudolph. But uh, for me, I want to make the right decisions. And what I had on my mind, is anything compared to how they must have thought about the time and effort they put into the case. And, of course, I didn't put as much time and effort into the actual trial of this case, except I was there every day with them. But I seriously doubt that I put as much time and effort into the trial of this case than either one of those lawyers. Let me ask the audience, if I talk to you about the idea of there being a crooked table... Do you know what I'm talking about? That Michael Peterson has suggested that he wasn't playing at a fair table here. That the odds were stacked against him. That's the line we've heard a few times, right? From all of the evidence you've heard, from all of the opinion you've heard, does anyone here buy the idea that there was some kind of conspiracy against Michael Peterson? Make it known. Make it known. (laughs) Not one taker. Interesting. Uh, Thank you for that. Uh, The theory that Michael Peterson was the victim of what we would call in this country a stitch-up, right? Or to give it its correct title, as I mentioned, a conspiracy. Uh, There are a few in Durham, in the community there, who are willing to entertain that, including Donald Nimmons. Conspiracy is always a, a rough word to pull into all of these sorts of things. But conspiracies can take a lot of forms, and the, and the least form it can take is, is kind of an unwillingness to see things from another point of view. Uh, they didn't like Mike in general, so there was just this perspective that they're, they're not going to put as much effort into looking at other possibilities of this than they might. Once the police came back and they started to be suspicious for whatever reason, that kind of set the, uh, the DA's mind on the matter. As far as an actual conspiracy per se, there were other things to keep in mind. This this occurred just on the heels of the Duke rape case, and the district attorney's office looked pretty bad, and I think they were hoping for a win. And in a sense, they, they kind of got one. Uh, Jim Harden, who prosecuted the case, has moved on to be a judge. Uh, the, the medical examiner just 
out and out lied as far as I'm concerned. She perjured herself on, on the stand in order to accomplish this. And no, no medical examiner worth their salt will refer to a cause of death as homicide. Homicide is not a cause of death. Blunt force trauma, exsanguination, those are causes of death. So prejudiced was she in order to give the district attorney's office what they wanted that there was a form of collusion here, clearly. Uh, for, to say that there was blunt force trauma when there was no physical injury to the brain as examined, there's never been such a thing. I think there was two competing theories. One, that she was killed with a bloody blowpipe, and one that she, the defense theory, that she tumbled down the staircase. Neither one of those theories, I think, prove, and has, that's why there's been such a discrepancy as to what people, therefore there was a rush to judgment by the people saying, well, these wounds couldn't have been created by a fall down the steps, and therefore most people being influenced by excessive media in this case, newspaper, etc., books, had come to the conclusion that he had to have killed her. I have said and maintained from the very beginning that there was something in the middle of those two theories, and that proves something totally different, and it is backed up by the state's evidence. If Mr. Peterson is happy with it, I'm happy with it. If the city's happy with it, I'm happy with it. I'm just trying to find the truth, as a citizen should do. So that was Larry Pollard. And I want to say one thing about Larry Pollard. Mark and I have visited Durham twice, and he was as generous and as welcoming, he and his wife, as you could possibly wish for. And he, of course, is the man behind Owl Theory, and that was him persisting, telling us why he persists with the idea of Owl Theory. And it's that aspect that might keep this case from being closed once and for all. This aspect of the case prompted a huge response. If there was anything that people were just endless tweets uh, to me about was our theory. And it's easy to rubbish it. It's easy to say how ridiculous. Now, I want to ask our audience here. I've got up on my feet and I'm looking at them in the eyes. And I want to know, and, and don't be scared here, okay? Is there anyone here, and, you know, legitimately so, who thinks there's anything in our theory at all? Come on. Yeah, right, here we go. Get over there. The gentleman. Let's ask this gentleman's name. Come on. Ian Cairns. Ian. Um, yeah, I was just wondering why um, why it wasn't explored more. I know it came in after the uh, original conviction, but there's hints in your podcast about feathers and things like that. Um, the fact that the skull wasn't smashed and it could have been torn by the talons and things. It seems it's worth investigating. seems it's worth investigating. Is there anybody who thinks... Hey, you're nodding your head as well. Go on, just tell us your name and tell us why you think... Why, why you were nodding at me. Liz, um, I agree about the feather. That, that was... I mean, when we were listening to it, we were like, oh, come on. And then when the feather was mentioned, we were like, oh, actually... Hang on a second here. You agree? Yeah. yeah. In unison. Feathers in her hand. Feather in her hand, exactly. Right, somebody, somebody here, just tell... Ian and Liz, that they're talking complete and utter nonsense. Who, who wants to volunteer themselves? Come on, help me out, because I don't want to do that job. Here. Here, here we go. We'll walk over here. Give us your name as well. My name's Judy. Hello, Judy. Um, I think it, first of all, it did make me think that, oh, yeah, hang on here, about yeah. the feather. And then I thought, well, she might have just been changing the bed or something. I mean, <laughs> it could have been 
anything really. It could have fallen off the roof and. Oh, so you, you're, you're basically saying you could put any kind of theory to give a reason as to why she ended up with those injuries ultimately? No, I, I, I think the, the owl thing, if it was me and it was, I was one of the relatives, I would have asked for the body to be exhumed to explore that in more depth because they were saying that the, the skull is obviously very hard and they would have to, if it was tears in the skull um, or smashes on the head that would prove that she had been murdered with a blunt instrument yeah as opposed to being attacked by an owl yeah yeah yeah, yeah. a proper yeah okay and uh, sorry what was your name kate um the biggest reason why owl theory didn't exist is because no one heard anything they would have come out if a big owl was attacking her and she died for two hours from an owl attack someone would have heard something i don't understand how no one heard anything the neighbors did hear something didn't they well, that's a very good point. Go on, go on. What were you? Oh, um, Adrienne, um, my question was going to be that the um, the neighbour Larry all mentioned that he'd heard a noise while he was watching the television, and that did not appear to be pursued. So maybe he felt really bad that he dropped him in it and came up with owl theory oh, to protect him. Oh, oh wow! Oh. Hello. <laughs> Go on, what's your name? Uh, my name's Dave. How are you doing? Hello, Dave. Uh, excellent podcast. Well, thank um, you, thank you, thank you very the, much. Well, I mean, our theory is kind of laughed out by Michael Peterson himself, even when I think you ask it when you meet him, and then you ask him, people ask him why it wasn't explored more, and he goes, hmm, hmm. <laughs> He's almost like going, do you expect me to even believe that as well? I mean, come on. <laughs> I, I suppose he's not going to rubbish something that might be in his defence, though, right? The, the, yeah, well, maybe that. Going yeah. back to the feathers thing, some people who, who do go for it say, well, why weren't there a lot more feathers, is, is another thing. Is a, yeah, you might have found one or two in the hand. And there would be the possibly feathers all over the place as well, right? Yeah. That's the other and suggestion. If, and if Michael is so keen to prove that he had nothing to do with it, you'd think there would be feathers there, if you see what I mean. There would be something else to back it up. And uh, remember, Larry Pollard talked to us about the sound thing, didn't he? He thought that she could have been attacked closer to where he was sitting watching the television. But actually, when she went in, all the screams and stuff, as you would have assumed that would have happened, that uh, was the other side of the house to where Michael was finishing off his drink and his cigarettes and everything else mm. out by the pool. That's a good point. People not hearing anything. Why didn't she go and talk to her husband and say, I've just been attacked by a flipping owl? <laughs> this is nuts. <laughs> I mean, that's what I would do. <laughs> Larry Pollard isn't here. I mean, he, his his view is obviously that she would she ran in in a panic into the house, um, and obviously by by the time Michael comes in and finds her at the foot of the stairs, it's too late to have any conversations about it. I mean, that that is his theory. I could have had a side bet with you, Mark. The the moment we mentioned our theory, it would bring the audience to life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Chris. Uh, I've got a slight medical background, uh, and I I think that the thing that sealed it for me was when you saw diagram and pictures of the wounds, the skull. Because if it was an attack by any creature, it surely they'd have to come back again and again and again. Um, and I just couldn't see how that would have happened. The, the nature of the lacerations, yeah, okay. And we've got a lady here, what's your name? Hi, I'm Roz. Hello, I, Roz. I, I'm not a medical person, but I felt like looking at the amount of blood and hearing about, about the amount of blood, an owl is not like a golden eagle. Do you know what I mean? Owls are a certain size. And I felt like if you were attacked by a bird, there would not be that amount of blood. 
so similar to well, this guy, you know, yeah. the, the lacerations, it d doesn't tie up to well, me. I would have thought I, I mean, there we, would be less. We met Larry Pollard on a couple of occasions and he talked in detail about the nature of owls' talons and the way that they rotate and the way that they're able to rip skin and, and, and all the rest of it and gave the suggestion from the research he had done that they could do quite serious damage. But, I mean, you know, that's Larry's research. Sorry. Yes. Been owl attacks. With, you know, that, that is a fact. There have been owl attacks. Whether there was one on this night is a different thing. Um, it's Rachel, and uh, it's quite a simple question. But how on earth is this owl meant to have got into the house? No, it was. It was supposed to be outside, wasn't it? It was supposed to have attacked her from outside, and she ran in to get away from it. Yeah, and, and she so goes to the staircase, and then subsequently and falls back. Falls in the way back. That so it's it's the beginning of the process, as far as Larry Pollard. Uh, outlines it and demonstrated it to us in, in graphic detail in his home, in fact. Well, I'm sorry, it's not very convincing. <laughs> if only Larry Pollard were here right now, but he's not, uh, sadly. He's a good man, Larry. Um, another factor which stops Michael Peterson's desire to move on, as he said to me in the interview in the last episode, is the fact that our friends in the French film crew are making a Staircase 3. They were due in Durham last month to film again and pull together the Owl Theory latest and, of course, Michael's Alfred plea. Monsieur Lestrade no longer makes documentaries but has turned to drama. He's found fame in France for directing a crime series called Maratera, which is the Gallic version of Broadchurch. And talking of TV series, watch this. It's the official NBC trailer for a series called Trial and Error. See if you can spot which case may just have influenced the writers. 911, what's your emergency? It's my wife. I think she might be dead. No, call waiting. I need to grab that. Sir? It's the cable company. I've been waiting for them all day. There's blood everywhere. I, I just really need to take this. I was waiting for the cable guy to show. I came back inside and I found Margaret dead. We'll get into all that before you testify on the stand. Icing on the cake? Cable guy never showed. Or maybe you won't take the stand. A murder trial is a great opportunity for me. I get my own team in office. We're next door to a taxidermist? Even better. We're gonna keep that closed. The victim was killed by going through a plate glass window. What could have happened based on the evidence? Fire away. Suicide! That was my first thought, too, but I tested the theory. I'm running for DA, which means I need a death penalty conviction. I had my chance when I was younger. Let's just say I was not as refined as I am today. Is it true that you heard the defendant threaten the victim? I don't recall. You don't recall? Get it, you little pig! I will not let this one get away. I have the ultimate respect for the court, Judge Horstick. It's pronounced Tyson Day. The N is silent. I react inappropriately when something awful happens, like when my grandmother fell off a balcony and landed on our car. Are these stripes on the floor around the outline of Margaret's body? Those are Larry's roller skating tracks who were blood. What? Oh. 
I lost the love of my life. There are subtle reminders of Margaret everywhere. That's our defense. Larry Henderson is a devoted husband and father. He loved his wife. There's no motive. There has been a twist in the murder investigation. We recovered these photos taken from a surveillance camera in the gym. Sexuality is fluid, and sometimes my fluids go towards men. The people would like to submit into evidence the police video from the night in question. Forgive the mess. Margaret is usually the one who cleans up, but that's oh, embarrassing. Uh, yeah, watch the legs. Trial and Error, a whole new kind of murder mystery, premieres Tuesday, March 14th on NBC. I don't know if any of you have ever seen. Have any of you ever seen that before? No. Okay. You're gonna say yeah. Gonna now. Uh, there's one final character that we haven't checked up on, and that's the house, the home, 1810 Cedar Street, Durham. It's now owned by a man called Beyond Fury, a man who, despite buying one of the most famous houses in North Carolina, guards his privacy, and it took Mark and I really a long time to win his trust. Well, beyond, you've obviously got a very, very interesting background, which I'm sure our listeners yes. were very interested to hear more about, but you're a psychic. Among other things, yes. Among other things. I've the word clairvoyant medium instead of psychic. Okay, <clears throat> so clairvoyant medium, which has actually mm-hmm. provided you with some kind of window into the past yes. and what happened, what existed in this house before you arrived here. Right. Can you tell us more? I'm aware of the history of the house, but basically... The house has had positive and negative things in its history. Uh, the Duke family built, built the house in the Depression, and uh, it's a beautiful, beautifully done by a famous architect, architect, John Watts Carr. All the people who have lived here, many different people have lived here over the years. Um, I do, so I do sense their energy, feel their energy, and negative and positive and, um, and neutral. So it's a fantastic experience living here. When, I, when I'm here, I travel from here to California, New York, um, it's an extraordinary house, and the energy is mixed. What kind of energy do you get from the time of mm-hmm. when the Petersons lived here? Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of confused energy, a lot of confused emotions, a lot of like um, mixed emotions, mixed energy. Positive or negative? Both. Uh, I would say in regard to conflict, there's a, con- a conflict in the house, and it's still... Energy is still somewhat continuing. In fact, I wrote three songs about my energy, my impressions from the energy: uh, "Staircase Murders," "Little Murders," and then also on um, "Blood Speaks." And the third song is uh, "The Ballad of Kathleen." And I recorded these songs with them. I'm recording now, presently, uh, with the, my, one of my co-writers. He worked work with John Lennon and the Beatles. What has it meant for you during that time period as well, though? Because obviously, there's there's interest from outsiders, isn't there? Mark and myself included. Yes. You know, we've come around, knocked at your door. You've been very, very welcoming to us. But what's your general experience been in respect of people who wanted to talk to you about the situation around Michael Peterson? Most people I've found in the neighbourhood are very set in their opinions. It's a South, after all, right? Um, very set in their opinions and not always positive. How often do you think about what happened? Because the staircase itself mm-hmm. is two seconds walk away from mm-hmm. us here. Yeah, right. And what do you think, you know, when you go up and down that staircase, do, do you think about what happened there much? 
I don't use that staircase. Is that a deliberate thing? Honest don't. Because of convenience or because of what happened? The other staircase is nicer to use. A spiral staircase. I prefer that. Look, maybe this case will never truly be over. And yes, I'm aware that podcasts like ours help to perpetuate this incredible, fascinating, and of course, tragic story. Okay. <clears throat> All right. Beyond Reasonable Doubt on BBC Radio 5 Live. In Michael's voice, you heard sincere, ultimate sorrow of the tragedy. She's still breathing. Please come. Is she conscious? What? He bears that sorrow always. Calm down, sir. A colleague of mine, Andy, Andy Curlis, was the police reporter at the time, and he listened to the tape. Sitting in the office, talking with him one day, he said, when I first listened to it, it sounded really horrible and calling in the murder of his wife. But the more he listened to it, just the odder it struck him. Kathleen was my life. I whispered her name in my heart a thousand times. She is there, but I can't stop crying. I find Michael to be extraordinarily intelligent and entertaining. Don't have never seen a flash of anger in him, have never seen any indication that he could ever do the kinds of things that he was accused of doing. The defendant says that Kathleen Peterson's death was caused by a tragic accidental fall downstairs in their home. And we say, on the other hand, that she died a horrible, painful death at the hands of her husband, Michael Peterson. If there was a single witness, one, anywhere, who could say one bad thing about their relationship, you know you would have heard it. What types of services did you perform? Basically, it's a, a companionship. Uh, for other males. And did that involve sexual activities? Just about anything under the sun. Uh. I actually thought they had an easy job. I thought the case was clear cut. He was either guilty or he was not. Even though um, you know that you want to say guilty, there's a part of you that says, okay, I want to make sure I'm doing the right process here because okay, I'm making the decision about somebody else's life, guilty or not guilty. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you are returning the following verdict. We, the 12 members of the jury, unanimously find the defendant to be guilty of first-degree murder. We had listened to so much um, intensity and emotion. We were all crying, all even the men. You had Michael Peterson's shoes. You had Michael Peterson's socks. I mean... That right there brings up a red flag. You know, why, if a man just found his wife deceased at the foot of the steps, why would he even think about taking his socks and shoes off unless he was trying to clean the crime scene up? This is a question from Christopher Starr. He says, I'd like to know Michael Peterson's reasoning for taking his shoes and socks off. It was very slippery. Before the trial was over, and before the mysterious blowpoke was found, 
Mike Peterson bought three blowpokes. They said, do you think this is information that you would like to have? Absolutely. There was no blowpoke. So we ordered them, and David was going to use them in the trial to just show, hey, this is ridiculous. And before that, and that's what what we did. We went and ordered these so that we could show in court that a blowpoke couldn't possibly have done the damage, couldn't possibly have been the murder weapon. The blowpokes I brought in had six-inch hooked tips. The tip you found, miraculously, there was no tip on that blowpoke. Where the heck was the hook tip? I think in the back of my sister's head. The headstone itself has three glass candle holders in heart shapes and a much smaller plaque to the side in loving memory of a wonderful sister and friend. And then the date, December the 9th, 2001. The final words on the headstone, just whisper my name in your heart, I'll be there. That is the challenge that I say is there. If you want to know what actually happened, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the talon meets the skull. I wanted to move on, get over this. And I had until, uh, I think it was last month, I got an email. I was in Mexico and uh, someone said, uh, there is this BBC podcast you should listen to. And my first reaction was, oh, my God, will this never end? And that is beyond reasonable doubt. A 16-year story that even now not only divides opinion, but for some of those involved, the wounds will never heal. This story is about the death of a woman in her 40s, found dead at the bottom of this very staircase. This cramped, narrow, wooden staircase at 1810 Cedar Street. It's where this tragic story began and where our story ends. Thank you for listening to it. This is Beyond Reasonable Doubt. In Durham, North Carolina. On BBC. Radio 5 Live. 5 Live. Beyond Reasonable Doubt was a wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 5 Live. I want to say my thanks to Peter Sale for the excellent mixing of the episodes to Tom Bett and Brad Duggan for their production of Wise Buddha, and Tom Gasparoli, Diane Fanning, and Aphrodite Jones for their assistance. Ian Mitchell and Ben Sutherland, who have given their time with sound and vision for tonight. And, of course, to this legend, super producer Mark Sandell.